0: Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckel. I'm James Ward. So, yeah, we missed last week because I had my vaccine and it knocked me. (laughs) I also had
1: my first vaccine, but I I didn't get so knocked. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, it's part of the mysteries of COVID.
1: Yep. Well, the nice thing is we'll be able to do like a developer conference or retreat or something sometime soon, hopefully. I.
0: That'll be nice. I. Really enjoy working on things with no schedule or goals in person, just kind of hanging out with other programmers and enjoying, you know, kind of, I guess, I guess I'd say bonding over our mutual fascination of this technology. That's, that's what creates the connection between us is the fascination with the technology. It's really true. Yeah.
1: luckily you and Bill and I have been able to do that quite a bit over the last few months working on the Atomic Scholar 3 book mm-hmm. it's been a lot of fun
0: it has and I feel like our last session was I don't know something really came together there and I think part of it was Bill goes let's just do something easy this week let's, let's <laughs> after wrestling a, with type classes uh, for a right, month <laughs> which we've made good progress I think on but it's so it's like bang against the wall you know just trying to go what's going on here and how's this work and how do we describe it and then we just decided to go let's just pluck this chapter from Atomic Kotlin and have a look at it and you guys you guys didn't even know it was possible to do this thing yeah that was
1: interesting to discover a Scala feature that's been around for a really long time that I had no idea about it's but I don't like it
0: well, and the syntax is really awkward. You know, when you compare it to the way Kotlin does it. So the, what we're talking about is basically um, the properties. So
1: S- setter and getter functions. The setter and
0: getter. And, and Scala, I mean, Kotlin has, you know, nice, clear syntax. So you know exactly what's going on. Whereas in Scala, it's like name of identifier underscore equals. So it's like an overloading. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it, it's... It's awkward, but you, you probably, I mean, considering it's Scully, you probably want it to be awkward. It's not something you want to... Yeah, and
1: so this is used, if you want to use the equals to assign something,
0: mm-hmm. then,
1: then really what you're doing with the setter is calling a function mm-hmm. that has this weird syntax that allows you to use the identifier space equals syntax. But the only place I can see using this is when you have mutable values underneath the covers in an object and i just i haven't used uh i haven't used mutable values variables in so long you are so pure so pure feels so right
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes yes well it's it's there to support the uh object functional hybrid System, so you yeah. can do it if you want to, but we're discouraged from it. So that's why you and Bill didn't even know about it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I only knew about it because we were just trying to cover all the features in the original Atomic Scala. Somebody
1: on Twitter, they're like, "Oh, another use of underscore that I didn't know about."
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think, and and I feel like there's been a lot of improvements in Scala three in terms of the uh you know understanding that syntax matters and it feels like with scala you know the original scala it was like not really a lot of thought given to the way syntax can just throw it all in yeah pretty much and i feel like they've been working on improving it and i mean the only thing that i i guess i wish they would have changed um case classes to data classes the way Kotlin has done it cuz I don't know case class doesn't really mean anything to me. I have to translate it in my head yeah. to being oh it's, it's a data class, it's a record, it's a you know that kind of or it's a yeah. data transfer object or a, you know there's a bunch of things that they could have used. Yeah. But they were I've seen this this happened in C++ when initially Bjarne said we want to make this a small language and so there was some overloading of keywords and things like that and then pretty soon they started realizing oh this doesn't actually make it easier and it doesn't make it smaller right it just seems smaller and and anyway, yeah. i think it's i think it's evolved nicely i'm way more comfortable with scala 3 than uh, scala 2
1: yeah yeah. yeah, we discovered, we were looking into ADTs mm-hmm. and we discovered with ADTs that when you do an uh, enum to create a, um, some type, then you do case and then the, the, uh, object type. And we were like, Oh, are those case classes? And we tried it without the case and you can do it, but it's not, um, it's no longer like a class, but did we discover that if you do case and then the thing that it actually is a case class, like it has all the typical. I think what m- it does
0: is methods. is the kind of it does some fancy unpacking. I don't remember; it's been yeah. too long since since we did the. It, g- it gives it extra powers. Yeah. When you so we weren't case. sure if they
1: were the full extra powers of a case class. Mm. Anyways, and yeah. maybe another overloaded use of the word case. <laughs> Could be.
0: So you wrote uh, a article on. It was kind of. It seemed like the state of the union of Java, modern. Yeah. In fact, I think you used the term modern Java. Yeah. In your In your blog post.
1: Yep. Yeah, and the so this is a blog on Jamesward.com that I just published this week mm-hmm. and. Yeah, it's called like the modern Java platform 2021 edition, because I'd kind of written a similar blog to this like six years ago. That one I had a much catchier title to. It was, that one was called um, Java doesn't suck. You're just using it wrong. Do you remember that one? <laughs> I um, remember the title. Yeah. And the 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 clickbaity title got, you know, got a lot more uh, traction. And this one, you know, I've I've gotten old and boring. And so, so I just gave it a very straightforward title of the Modern Java Platform 2021 edition. But what I tried to do in the blog post was for people that have not been... In the Java ecosystem, possibly for a long time or maybe never. Like, what is the state of the art? What's new? What's exciting? What? Because you were saying do? that
0: those people were remembering Java from like EJB days.
1: Oh, so like many that people thought. that I interact with at work or or on Twitter, the Java that they're familiar with is the 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 sad. Uh, what's the uh, the dark ages of Java? It really was the dark ages of Java with EJBs and. Um, all that stuff, and, then, and so that's that's what they think of as Java.
0: When Sun was really pushing, EJBs are the way to go, and then, and then we discovered billions of dollars were wasted.
1: I mean, what's funny is that a lot of the concepts from that era mm-hmm. are coming back around. Right, that we see a lot of the things that that were uh, core parts of Java and the ecosystem are are new again they've just been like like redone in in new ways like uh for example um the ability to to make communication across the wire easy and transparent like gRPC like is kind of done that and, and in, a, in a similar way to what we were doing with EJV. That's solving right. the general problem. Yeah, and so, so what we've seen is like a lot of the stuff that, that was in the uh, Java J2E, Java E ecosystem, the way that things were done, are, are being done again, but being done in agnostic, platform agnostic, <laughs> language agnostic ways. So serverless in some ways is kind of like what we were doing with WAR files mm. uh, back in, in those days. Now, today, most people don't use WAR files. They, they you know, just have a jar file that they can run. They don't have a container that they put the thing into and, and all that, but in, in a lot of ways, serverless is like what we were doing back then. And I so. think
0: it's worth pointing out that we had, I think you were here for this. We had one of our early um, events appear And uh, I think it was when Martin Fowler was involved. Yeah. And um, so we had some folks and it became clear that the whole EJB thing was pure ivory tire. It it was totally untested thinking. Yeah. That Sun had said, oh, that looks good enough for us. Let's rush it in and let's start promoting it. Yeah. I think that was... I think that's kind of the biggest problem that I've had with Java is it's focus on you know promoting what sounds good rather than actually engineering yeah and figuring out what works yeah and so yeah. as a result it's been yeah. way slower than you know the yeah. the competing technologies have outstripped it yeah anyway go on uh so in my blog post I just tried to
1: frame the world of like, what is the Java ecosystem look like today? And so a big part of it was around languages because I think that that's where a lot of the, for me, a lot of the exciting modern stuff lies. Like, yeah, Java is doing some interesting things. I, in the blog quoted, uh, Brian Gatter didn't quote him, but referenced how he says, like Java in some ways has the last mover advantage where they intentionally move slowly, wait for things to kind of, get worked out by some other languages and then they add add them in we see that with uh the pattern matching stuff that's that's going into java 16 that was just released this week where they are getting a bit better pattern matching it's not anywhere as good as scala's pattern matching it's getting closer to like kotlin's pattern matching um but at least you know they're taking some steps to make the the language better so um so I actually, I focus mostly, of course, on Kotlin and Scala and the modern improvements there, just because that's what I have the most experience with. I haven't really written much Java in the last decade. It's been mostly Scala and, and Kotlin. Um, of course, I can write Java and, and do sometimes write Java, but, but if I'm going to pick a language, I'm going to pick Kotlin or Scala.
0: <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know.
1: So there was there was some stuff about language innovation, and if if you want to be modern, pick Kotlin or Scala. Um, hey, you could you could certainly stick with Java, and that's fine. Like there's okay. going or <laughs> I did take a shot at Go in there. I called it archaic, which some people took offense to. I don't see why. but <laughs> <laughs> no one actually provided a a a cohesive rational argument for why go is not archaic <laughs> which i think it's i think it's pretty intentionally archaic and mm-hmm. if that's what you want it if if that if there are other things that you like about go then great use go
0: but don't don't try to call it a modern language <laughs> i in my mind it's a replacement for c it solves a bunch of problems that c has been stuck, yeah. not being able to solve. Yeah. I mean, especially like easy concurrency. Yeah, you know, C never mastered that, as far as I could see. Yeah, um, and then you know, and a number of other things. It's an improvement over C. Yeah, and uh, and if that's if that works for you, yeah, great. If, if what you're doing is is basically C programming, then, yeah, then uh, would want to use Go rather than C. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So I, somebody who took issue with me calling it archaic, I responded and said, yeah, here's some of the top of my mind language features that I would consider modern that Go does not have. Mm-hmm. And listed, you know, uh, great pattern matching, ADTs, type classes, immutability by default. Um,
0: but you don't really need those things, do you? Yeah. <laughs>
1: I, I can't go back. You know, it's, I, I do write some Go code. And mm-hmm. when I do, I'm just like, why is it so hard to filter a list?
0: Mm hmm. Mm mm-hmm. uh, Just well, basically. And, and stuff how like do we know anything about the efficiency of, of doing that? You know, because Go's yeah. supposed to be fast, but you were having questions. It wasn't yeah. clear. Yeah, it's not clear. What was clear? All. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: It's, uh, so, anyways, yeah, I took my little shot at Go, but, um, but if people want to use it, great. I want to use Kotlin and Scala. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, also I talked about um, tooling. Uh, build tooling, test containers, and IDEs as being kind of the, the core of my tooling. And I have my issues with every build tool. Uh, I certainly spend a lot of time in the great old pain cave. Um, and... We've talked about that that extensively on this, on this show, but you
0: didn't use that phrase, which is now embedded in my head.
1: Yeah. I've also spent my fair time in the SPT pain cave. Mm -hmm. Um, I've spent a little bit of time in the Maven pain cave, but not, not too bad. And I think part of that is just that the ecosystem, somebody else has spent the time in the pain cave for me with Maven Hmm. and built a plugin so that I don't have to, to, to go there. Um, but the, the modern tooling is great. And I, I posted in the blog post a demo of how I actually use the build tools and the IDEs and test containers, how I use that all together to get like one second uh, reloads, so that I can test a change within one or two seconds, how I can easily bootstrap a new project, pull it into the IDE, get code completion. get. So I, I tried to show like what my modern tooling is looks workflow looks like with and i used in that case spring boot gradle and test containers but i do the same workflow even if i'm not using those tools i always use intellij but uh vs code certainly an option as well
0: yeah i i've had in the last week or 10 days or whatever some experiences with um gradle again some in, the, in the gradle pancake yeah and um but i did this like, I'm coming up... Because I've relied on you and other people to create my Gradle build file so I could just... You realized that was a mistake. It's like, like well, Rely on other people to yeah, do well, your build for of, you. Well, kind of, yeah. I've, I've slowly learned that, no, I have to understand all of the things. But um, but I finally re- realized, oh, a great way to start, and I don't know if you do this, is to go into IntelliJ and have IntelliJ build... You, create your bare bones great uh, build for you because there's some check boxes that you can put Oh, interesting. and the thing is and then it actually you know there's you got no files in it but it verifies that yes the um, like the Kotlin the, ex- the, the Kotlin yeah. um, plugin will can be found yeah and the reason that I had to do this is because I started with just bare you know I was looking at the things and it says here's what you put in for the plugin yeah and I put it in and I got all kinds of weird error huh. messages. With now, this is before I started using IntelliJ. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, you know, I'm flailing about trying to figure out how to get started with this because I couldn't yeah. get any... there. I couldn't find anything on the internet. I'm going, I must be doing something wrong. I don't understand yeah. it. And then I did it with IntelliJ and it built the, the bare yeah. bones cradle build file and it worked even though it was, you know, importing this, the Kotlin thing. Yeah. And, and I And then I tried... Updating it, I discovered oh, IntelliJ uses six point seven, and I tried updating uh, it to six point eight, and any version, and six point eight has been out like five months or something, yeah. and they've had three different subversions, which is maybe a little uh, <laughs> questionable. And it's like any version of six point eight that I went to, it couldn't find huh. the the. Uh, oh, I wonder Kotlin if this plugin. is uh,
1: so the the Java um world and a, in a lot of ways the Kotlin related part of this has been um had some issues lately because of bintre's um uh bintre has has had some outages and they are shutting down bintre in may
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so there's been a lot of people scrambling to move off of bintre to maven central uh and i maven central has been such a critical part of the whole java ecosystem and has been mostly reliable there's definitely some issues with deploying new artifacts but most of the time consumption just works um i'm i've become incredibly thankful for maven central and just shutting down yeah and just what a core part of the java ecosystem it's been and um yeah, but uh but so your issues may have been related actually to JCenter.
0: This is uh, only Bench. using Maven Central. Yeah. There was no bin tray at all. But the under you know I mean when when I was able to go, oh, IntelliJ makes this work for me. Yeah. It's like, okay, I'm a, I'm more of a fan of IntelliJ now. So the before
1: the they're still using as far as I know the gray, the groovy Gradle syntax. And I've I've tried to on all of my projects over the last year use the kotlin syntax um, for well there's gradle.
0: a there's an option oh is there check so you can generate okay. the, the, the yeah which okay. i haven't done yet because i'm trying not to change too many things at once
1: yeah um so usually i don't use that way or mm-hmm. i've never used that way to, oh, really? to bootstrap a gradle project i uh, i get very particular about my build files and how they're structured and mm-hmm. just things like you know in in um the Gradle build file, when you specify a dependency on a Kotlin standard library, either, you know, there's a bunch of Kotlin standard libraries, like uh, there's the standard one, then there's the reflection one, then there's a few others. Anyways, the Gradle has a syntax to where you just say um, implementation and then Kotlin and then stand uh, kotlin dash standard, whatever, whatever the, the dependency is there. So it's this really nice, concise syntax, but a lot of the, build files that I see don't use that nice syntax to pull in those Kotlin standard dependencies. So anyways, I'm very particular about my build files and how they're structured. And so I don't, I don't uh, let anyone else do that. So usually what that means is I go find one of my previous build files and go copy and paste mm, it when I start mm-hmm. a new project. But,
0: yeah. It's, it's one of those, Oh, there's more than one way to do the same thing. So yeah, uh, there's a lot of ways.
1: Well, and, and plugins ways. are, one of the abysmal parts of Gradle where it's just like, God, why do we have so many different ways to pull in plugins? And then it depends, like, is the plugin on the Gradle plugin portal or is it on Maven central? And if it's on Maven central, then you had to like put some special magic syntax in your settings.gradle file. And it just,
0: my problem is is when there's multiple ways to do the same thing, I look at, Somebody, you know, a file that's done it differently. And I go, oh, that's different. I wonder why. Yeah. And I have to figure out. And then if I come back down and it's like, well, it's not. It's just yeah. the same. It's just different syntax for doing the same thing. Then I'm going, I just wasted a whole bunch of time yeah. figuring that out. Right. And I don't know when the next thing is going to be different yeah. or the same. or. Uh. So if you stay
1: on the happy path.
0: yeah. Uh, then, which,
1: which the happy path... Is fairly well paved in some places. So if you go to start.spring.io and you go generate a Spring project and you select Gradle for the build tool, what it gives you is pretty good, um, not perfect, and I have to go make changes. But and this
0: is Spring Boot. Spring Boot, yeah. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, same is true for Quarkus and for Micronaut. They all have they all have websites that'll give you a starter project.
0: And Even it- if I'm not using. Spring Spring.
1: No, they're really intended for I mean but you, I could, you could. But, I
0: could do that and but take that stuff out. You could. Yeah. Okay.
1: But um, but if you're gonna start with any of the three of those, the starters that they give you are pretty good, they give you a, mm-hmm. a pretty good build definition. And so so I think if you stay on that happy path, like I'm building a spring boot application and I'm gonna go to start.spring.io and generate like what you get out of that is pretty good. hmm Um so So, yeah, so I talked about build stuff and, and I'm, I, there are issues, but I'm pretty happy with the state of the developer tooling side of the Java ecosystem. And so that was part of the blog post. I feel very productive with it. I, I definitely have things that I do that are probably different from the norm that I think make me productive, like using test containers to spin up my service dependencies and stuff. But, um. But generally, I'm I'm happy with it, and I think that it continues to improve. Uh, then I also talked about um, frameworks in in the the Java ecosystem. I specifically highlighted Spring Boot just because it is the standard. If you are if if you want to be in the OO annotation based world, like Spring Boot is just great. It works. There's it's a huge ecosystem. Lots of things. Alternatives to that would be Micronaut or Corcus. Uh, there's, of course, many, many different alternatives, but I think those are the two that stand out for me. Um, all, all of them work great with Kotlin. The one caveat that I said in there was that if you want to do Kotlin coroutines, Spring Boot or Micronaut are better. My, uh, Corcus doesn't yet have coroutine support, which is unfortunate. I think they're working on it. But um, and then, uh, and then in the Scala world, I said like. Play Framework, I've used Play Framework a lot. and used to be a
0: big proponent of
1: it. Yeah, and I, I do like it, but as I've gotten more functional programming oriented and tried to do things more pure functional, Play Framework has become less uh, of something that I want. I think it's still a great framework and the productivity is great, but it definitely uses the typical kind of dependency injection style of things and not the pure functional style of things. So what do you prefer? So Zio Zio is where where all my interests are right now. Unfortunately, Zio does not yet have like a full blown web framework. That would be a good alternative to play framework. They they just announced a HTTP server that provides a lot of the foundational pieces to that, but they don't have like the full blown web framework Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um so zio for a lot of things i think is a great option today but if you want a web application where you build the front end and the back end and the same code base then i don't i don't think zio is quite there yet mm-hmm. um so i talked about zios but i said like the the frameworks in the java ecosystem there's a lot of great options there whether you're doing Scala or Colin or Java, and they're mature. They're mature, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, Zio I wouldn't say is 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 super mature yet, but mm-hmm. is getting there. Um, whereas Spring Boot very mature.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and Micronaut too.
1: Mic- Micronaut is pretty new, but but it builds on a lot of the the foundations of other things. So and the
0: technology is pretty amazing. I mean, this idea of Doing dependency injection at compile time. Is
1: yes, quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, and which works a lot better with GraalVM, which I also talked about um, in the the blog post. Was around. All right, we do have a way to create native executables so that they start up faster and uh, and don't have you know the garbage collection overhead and some of those those things. And and so if you need to, if if that's something that you need then Micronaut may be a better option than Spring Boot. Spring Boot does have a way to use GraalVM, and I've tried it and had limited success with it, just because it's it's early days for a lot of that native compilation GraalVM native image stuff. And so uh, Zio, on the other hand, is actually a lot better with that. Uh, Really, a lot of things in the Scala ecosystem are a lot better with that. Because if you are purely functional, that code can be much more easily ahead of time compiled. Mm. Uh, Whereas in the typical Java reflection-oriented stuff, it can't ahead of time compile dynamic reflection-based stuff, and so then you have to tell GraalVM about it, and that can be challenging. And I've run into all sorts of <laughs> insurmountable hurdles with that. But the but the tooling around that is evolving, and there's something called Spring Boot Native or Spring Native. Uh, Micronaut has built-in support. Corcus has great support, um, but the, but there are challenges. It's not a it's not an easy. Path.
0: i guess that would be an example of the um invariance making things faster that this, you were talking about earlier today. yeah describe that to me well just because it, you know there isn't this dynamic uh, nature yeah um it can yep. produce a much faster
1: optimum yeah i can optimize it yeah. yeah 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 it's weird to me in the the Java ecosystem that we've we've let so much dynamic stuff creep into our world in there. So dependency injection is a huge one. A lot of it is basically just dynamic programming, <laughs> like mm-hmm. dynamic runtime wiring. Uh, serialization is another big one. Um, Jackson is the primary JSON library in the Java ecosystem. And a lot of, I, I think they have some other ways to use it, but essentially the most of the ways that people use Jackson in the Java world is based on runtime reflection. Um, and then a big one which just, just hurts me is that most of the server side templating in the Java ecosystem mm. is actually dynamic runtime stuff. Mm. Uh, I when I when I started using play framework was the first time I started using compile time server templating and I can't go back like the fact that people allow runtime bugs to creep into their code into their programs because they essentially just are running a template at runtime and not having compile time validation just
0: is it's not just the validation it's the speed.
1: Performance could also be. And you're be,
0: doing something yeah. that you're doing something over and over again that only really needs to be done once.
1: Yeah. 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 So I think there is caching and, you know, whatever. Well, yeah. But, but yeah, one the, I think the challenge is that you, you definitely pay a price on, um, yeah, you compile. you do have a compile phase. And uh, for your server-side templates. And so that can be a bit of a developer product, or can seem like a developer productivity hit. but but the validation that you get yeah. is so worth it. Uh, JSPs were actually probably the first place where I did this because the the first, the first way that people use JSPs were that the first time a request would come into a JSP, Java Server page, uh, it would, the server would actually compile that JSP page. So it was still basically runtime, but there was a compilation process. And then what happened was people took those JSP compilers and actually built like Maven and AMP plugins for them so that you could pre-compile your JSP's. So that Because what would happen is the first time you started your server and somebody would request a JSP, then they would sit there and wait for the JSP to be compiled. And obviously that's silly, making your user sit there and wait for your JSP to compile. So they started doing pre-compilation of JSP's, which was good, a good good progress because at least that helped us get validation that our templates were valid syntax. Mm. <laughs> um, but anyways, um, it's just as wild how much dynamic runtime stuff we typically do in the Java ecosystem, yeah. which I'm glad to see in a lot. I'm seeing a lot of that stuff diminish. GraalVM is, is part of the motivation for that. But, um, yeah.
0: But yeah, it just, it seems like there's, Always a line that you cross. I mean, because you know, at some point, the software needs to be interactive and dynamic. But where that line is, yeah, I think if if you're doing it in a sloppy way, you go, ah, we'll just let the computer, you know, it'll be like PHP. We'll yeah, just, computer will just calculate every everything, everything every time a server comes in. Yeah, a, a user comes in, yeah. and it's a page versus oh you know maybe that's not yeah that for many reasons not just speed yeah i think when you when you point out uh the kinds of tooling that can help you find problems yeah. that's when it becomes you know really compelling for me how does yeah. it help the programmer yeah but yeah. at the same time you you get better speed yeah so we had a um a comment from somebody that sort of fits with uh,
1: yeah so um uh, Somebody had had said, uh, "What about Java sixteen? It seems like they're getting some of these language features in in Java sixteen with record types and a bit better pattern matching." And um, yeah, I think there was a question like, "Are are Java developers going to actually ever get the get and use these features, or are most people just going to use Kotlin or Scala?" Um,
0: and and you know, Java eight is still being you know, incorporated into the world.
1: Yeah. I mean, most of the production Java apps are running on Java eight still.
0: And not necessarily using many of the new features that were incorporated into Java eight.
1: Yeah, it's true. Like you, if you look around at Java eight code, whether on stack overflow or on, on GitHub or whatever, you don't see even like a lot of stream usage, Mm -hmm. still see a lot of, like mutable for loops and stuff.
0: Sure, yeah, because that's what they were doing before and that worked. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's a significant mental shift to to go to something like streams. Yeah. So you add some of these other features that have been included in, in uh, more recent versions, or maybe included. That's the other thing is. <laughs> so yeah, and and I've been struggling with this. We have the same level of change in, you know, number change. It was like, well, so Java 16 is out. Well, except that how many of those features are experimental? I don't know. If I was a company, I would say, I'm, I'm yeah, we're not going to mess with that. We're just going to wait for the next hmm. long term support version. Hmm. And, and it's a, you know, how many people are using Java 8 simply because it's the current long-term support version. Hmm. You know, whereas what they're really doing is programming in Java 5. Right. Yeah. And I don't know it's all kind of it's and 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 as we've discussed before, if you really want the you know, new and interesting features are and I think this this user was saying, they were the the, the person who was commenting was saying, well, you know, some of these features are kind of like partial. Yeah. And so if I really want, I don't know, pattern, pattern matching. If, if that's an important feature for me, wouldn't I want the more sophisticated one rather than the partial feature that, um, Yeah. that's been incorporated here, which I can't really use until the yeah. Java 17 comes out and we know what's actually going to be in it. Because yeah. right now, this is the confusing it. thing for me is because when you look at, at the versions that are coming out, they'll say, okay, well, this is our, you know, first, I don't know what term that they use, first test version of this feature. And I don't even know if that feature is going to make it into the long-term support version. Right.
1: So Does the compiler give you some warning or do you have to, like, specify a compiler parameter to turn on these features or... I don't know how all that works. I don't
0: know. I haven't been, you know... Though, I'm not going to write to the intermediate um, versions. I I wish they would say, look, this is an intermediate version. This isn't, you know, some of these... And they do sort of, but some of these features may be in the language and some of them may not. Those are test features. And so I'm not going to put the effort into figuring them out until they're actually in the language. And And I'm I'm just just have trouble with this idea that oh java 16 it's got the same number bump as java 17 but java 17 is very different yeah than all of the the six month releases have come before it just makes me i don't know something about it makes me uncomfortable yeah
1: yeah i don't i don't know if i have much of an opinion on that just because i'm not i don't do java much Mm -hmm. anymore java language stuff uh it's a hard problem like in the scala ecosystem you have to opt into language features that are experimental Mm -hmm. and you in some cases can do that through an import in some cases you can do that with a compiler setting some cases either and so um it's got to be hard as a language designer because you want to experiment with things but How do you convey that? How do you how do you let people know what they're getting into? But how do you actually have a release that people will try it? Because I think that's one of the challenges is that that you you need a bunch of people to actually like really use a feature so that you can understand what changes need to be made to it. But this feels
0: like somebody's trying to trick me into using this and Um. testing their features. And I may accidentally incorporate one of those features in Mm -hmm. and then later they say, you know, that one didn't work out. Thanks for testing it for us. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just, it makes me, I don't know. Yeah. Uncomfortable, but.
1: It's, I mean, one alternative is that you, you somehow have a much more thorough design by committee process. And I don't really like that approach. Um, in no, some yeah. ways, like, isn't the Python improvement process stuff like kind of like a design by committee on a feature and then they they have some way in Python to like add it in as experimental or something and then...
0: Oh, they do. They know. incorporate them as experimental features, but they're very clear yeah. that, oh, no, we're, you know, we're trying this feature out. This is an enhancement. Python, it's a PEP, Python yeah. Enhancement Proposal. Okay. Pep. And, um, you know, we're... We're working this out and we want to see if if it works, if it yeah. needs to be improved. So, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, open discussion about it. Yeah. And I guess sometimes it gets a little heated. And I know that yeah. um, Guido got tired of being in the middle of all that. And power <laughs> to him. that he.
1: It's such a hard thing. Yeah. You yeah. there want things to move forward. and mm-hmm. But you got to get feedback and then people have... Strong opinions about it, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's hard to be a language designer.
0: Oh, very hard.
1: I'm glad that's not my job.
0: No, no. Every <laughs> once in a while, I've I've imagined, you know, what it would be like to design the perfect language, and yeah, and I just go, you know, I have a hard enough time understanding yeah. the existing languages, and that I. I that's, that's something we were talking about a little at coffee was um, I think there's just not enough focus when you're certainly when you're trying to explain features and uh, perhaps motivate features into a language is what problem are we solving? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's very much like the, um, the you know, how do you describe a monad? yeah well, it's a burrito, or the other night we since you have small children and Bill's about to have a small child I thought. I thought no, it's actually like a diaper, that's right, monads, they're <laughs> like diapers, yeah, full diapers, yeah, yeah, well, in any event, it's like well, it doesn't really matter the the implementation is not... And that's what people focus on, is the particular strategy right. to solve the problem and not the problem that they're trying to solve. Yep. They, yep. they decide, well, that's obvious? I don't know. I'm, yep. not, I'm not sure. Or it becomes so obvious to them that they stop thinking mm. about it. And and when you're trying to explain it to somebody, if you don't start with, what problem are we trying to solve? Yeah. Then it just sounds like... I mean, I use the example of... Uh, describing hash functions and if i just jump in and say so you know we have this list of things that we keep fixed size and then you can jump into it and then you have this chain i mean suddenly it's overwhelming why are you doing all this yeah but if you have to start with we're trying to make the fastest lookup possible yeah yeah and and then it all falls into place yeah and i think that's that's key well Like when we're describing, you know, we're trying to figure out type classes Mm -hmm. and I struggled. And then finally I started going, oh, this is another form of we want to write. Well, let's just say a function. We want to write a function and we want to use it for more than just one type. Yeah. And there's there's a number of different approaches to that problem and they all have their strengths and limitations yeah. and type classes is another way to do that. Yeah. It's like, Oh, okay. Now it's starting to fit for me. Yeah. Whereas before it was just, Oh, you do this thing and it reaches out and it grabs this thing. It's like, why are you doing yeah. that? Yeah. You know, what is the point? And how am I supposed to explain this to somebody yeah. if I don't start with, Hey, we have a problem. Yeah. And here's how we're trying to solve it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think we talked a while back about how Elm went through that process of Evan, the language designer, said, said what problem are type classes trying to solve? And, and it, people tried and tried to explain to him what problem it was trying to solve. But it, when I checked in on the thread, no one was able to successfully describe why... <laughs> What problem type classes are trying to solve? I
0: think we're going to do it in uh, atomic Scala three. Yes, we are. Cause, yep. yeah, because yeah, yeah, because we have to. Yeah, but I think well, we're getting closer to
1: What's interesting is that a lot of times we, when we can't describe the problem or it's very hard to do that, we resort to either analogies like the burrito for monads, or we resort, or we resort to uh, specific implementations so in the case of type classes we say okay think about adjacent serializer you know so we we go back to that did not help me yeah yeah so it's because I
0: could you know solve that problem in a number of different ways which is actually really important to look at yes there are more than one way to solve this problem but what is the problem yeah
1: yeah or we resort to the mathematical definition the category theory definition of
0: the thing like for a monad what is it a monad uh, is a monoid in the category of endofunctors yeah I, why can i remember that i have yeah. no idea what it means that was good i'm just making noises with my mouth <laughs> yeah
1: hey and and that may be the, the actual true category theory definition of a monad but it certainly doesn't help anybody understand why you should use monads Right. Uh, what problem they solve right right yeah uh, it's been a long path i
0: feel like i'm getting it i could be wrong yeah I've had this experience before but it was it was like when i was figuring out what dynamic binding did in at first using the c++ c front compiler yeah and i had to look at the generated code and say wait a minute it's looking something up in a table why the heck is it doing that and it took a lot i mean once i understood what it was doing it took a lot longer to understand why yeah because there wasn't that motivation yeah yeah it was just oh well we need dynamic binding yeah well, okay well yeah why why
1: there's something in here around philosophy and like plato's cave and and all that kind of stuff really about how we see reality and and um the difference between form and what what is it in plato's world there's you can have the form of the thing and then the object of the thing or something like well that. he had an
0: idea that there was this this actual ultimate truth and then there was some light being shined through that, and it made these images mm-hmm. on the wall. Yeah, very much like our, yeah, our screens. Yeah, uh, and then what, so you were seeing the images, and you were interpreting that as reality. Yeah, and actually, there was some—I um, forget how he described it, but but you know, there was some pure concept that was the, yeah. that was generating these things, and it was getting distorted by the yeah by the projection.
1: Yeah, so the, in the case of monads, I, I, it took me a long time, years to, to understand kind of what monads were, but I used them a lot. And so if, if I were asked at that time to describe monads, I would really just be describing the projection on the wall, Mm -hmm. my experience of them, but not describing the actual reality that, you know, that was behind that. And, and, and I think in some ways what, what we're describing is that to be able to understand the why is to recognize the actual reality or like you, you've, you've moved past the projection to something, something deeper. And for me, it's, it's re, maybe for a lot of people, it's very hard to, to go take our experience beyond that projection and our perception of 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 our experience mm-hmm. um to the the deeper deeper more real concepts
0: yeah and just i don't know how my brain works i'm stuck until cuz i i, I want to know if if you're going to design with something you have to understand what design problem you're solving mm. and so i kind of have to go from there and it's just I guess because I've done it this way for so long, I yeah. gotta know why. You know why does this feature exist? What what is it doing for me? Yeah, um,
1: yeah, yes and no. I think um, like without me understanding monads, but having used them, I can then like basically pattern match and be like, okay, this would be another great place for monads without really understanding them. But I think. That that then my I'm, my pattern matching is limited on the places where I could see where monads would apply. Whereas you take somebody like John de who and many other people, but uh, but who really understand monads and then can be like, oh, he, there's this universe of places where we can use monads because they understand the deeper the deeper part of it, um, the the deeper reality of it.
0: Well, and I have to say, I really admire your ability to wade in and just go. Oh, here's the thing. Let's try and build something with it. <laughs> you know what I'm? I'm going. Whoa. I got no, <laughs> Hang no. Hang on. I, I, need gotta to, I need to understand why <laughs> we're why we're doing this before you just go in and start thrashing around. Yeah. And yet, you can learn a huge amount by actually going in and saying, "Oh, you know, we plug the pieces together and it works." <laughs> and and you kind of leap forward that way yeah and i, and I think that is that it's is super cool
1: that you can do that. different paths to understanding definitely different
0: paths yeah
1: the the object not the
0: but i get I get bound up with i i can't just be sticking capacitors on this on this circuit without you know why am i doing that what what if i put the wrong capacitor there what happens yeah. i i don't know yeah my first experience in electronics was um, they handed us some, uh, some LEDs which were like a dollar a piece at the time yeah. and, uh, and I you know, I, I think, I go oh, this will light up if I put current through uh-huh. and if you put current through, it has no resistance yeah. and so it just like goes to the maximum amount of current and the thing pops it sends the end, you know, little thing across the room. Yeah. I'm going, oh, I didn't, you know, I, I broke it because I didn't understand yeah. what was going on. Yeah, yeah. And and so I think that's made me careful ever huh. since, you know, yeah. gun-shy probably. Yeah. And not Better as understand.
1: understand this thing or it's going to blow up. It's going to blow up. Right. Yep. Yeah. 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 Huh. that's That's interesting. Um, So... Java sixteen, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm sure people will use it. I'm sure people will like it. I'm sure there's great improvements there. Um,
0: I, I, it's. I'm probably not going to use it. I'm not going <laughs> to. Well, no, I'm not going to write about anything until you know Java seventeen comes along, and then I go. Well, that's a real thing. Yeah. Java sixteen. Is it real? I don't know.
1: I mean, I guess you're in an interesting position in that you you actually do write about these new features for your um, thinking in Java updates and stuff, and so so you actually do need to understand record types. Whereas record types are going to probably be used by Scala and Kotlin in some way, and and I uh, I won't use them directly so I'm glad that somebody's going to understand them and use them but why wouldn't you use them I'll use data classes and and case classes and maybe underneath the covers you know they'll turn into records or something I don't know how that's going to work but 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 I'm going to let the Scala and Kotlin language designers think about what records mean for Mm -hmm. Kotlin and Scala but 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 you for your writing you, you will Need to understand a these features deeper and deeper understanding of and them. Yeah, write about them.
0: Yeah, and I think it'll also change serialization for Java. Yeah, because mostly that's what you're sending back and forth on the wire. Yes yeah, is, is true. records and the general serialization that they put in was just a complete cluster. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was just um, yet another Java feature that was tossed into the mix without really thinking about what the impact was and yeah. has caused apparently all kinds of security issues and yeah, you know,
1: it's amazing that serialization still is so hard. It mm-hmm. still is something that we all wrestle with mm-hmm. in so many different ways.
0: Cause you really want it to be automatic and secure, you know? Yeah. And,
1: and efficient and, uh, i certainly appreciate schemas mm-hmm. <laughs> um so i can mm-hmm. validate things and evolvable take... and it turns out it's it's a really hard problem that you know it 40 is. 40 years in we're still trying to figure out how to how to take data out of memory and and put it into a form that I we can send it to somewhere want else
0: to take this object and put it over there. Why is, that so, <laughs> why is hard? that so hard? Well, and why isn't it a solved problem? Why? Yeah. Did, because it, and I think it's just because on the list of things that needed to be solved, it's like, oh, let's just do a quick and dirty serialization thing, and then later we'll revisit it. Yeah. And it's twenty-five years later, and That's, now they're finally yeah. looking at it. And yeah. Well, it turns out there's, it's actually
1: the surface area of that one problem seems simple, but as you really get into it, it is not, there is so many facets to this that are Oh yeah. so many, so many pieces to the problem that it turns out it's actually a really complicated problem. If it was simple, I think it, we would have, it would have been solved already, but. It's not simple, right, right? Because you've you've got to think about performance. You've got to think about size. You've got to think about interoperability. You've got to think about. Uh, you have to think about. Let's see, what are some other aspects to serialization? Um, forwards compatibility, backwards compatibility. Uh, you have to think about. Um, like one of the nice things about jason was that it was easily human readable that you could you know see it whereas binary formats can be much more efficient but then you need some tool to look
0: at it well and... somebody has to think about those and i feel like that's the you know compiler designer engineer that's that's part of their job yeah that has been kicked down the road for 25 years yeah and you know I, as a end programmer, putting that burden on me is not a reasonable thing i mean it's it's very much like oh, let's just throw in low level concurrency <laughs> and then the programmer will have to you know they they'll know they'll figure it out, you yeah, know? and it's like no, it's not. It, there are just so many factors yeah. there that are so too complicated. Uh, I think one
1: of the biggest is the the how you map the data, the serialized format to types in the thing. Like that turns out to be a really hard problem. Uh, I just saw some JSON recently that put the type information into the JSON, which is a little bit awkward because JSON already has essentially a type system it's a very limited type system but so they in json properties would say the type of this thing is a string (laughs) like actually in the data and uh, i have issues with with that but then you still have to figure out all right the json says this thing is a foo i need a foo in my programming language to map that thing to
0: what if I don't have a food type? Then what do I do? <laughs> well, and and you know, I think this brings up the issue that we don't even understand the shape of the problem because it may be that to solve the problem, you do have to include type information in your package that you're shipping. There, you know, that's kind of a PhD dissertation sort of thing. Yeah. Do, do, uh, you know that that you need to prove one way or the other. Yes, you have to have it, or no, you yeah. don't. And the fact that we haven't even figured that out yeah. to the point where we can say yes yeah. or no.
1: Yeah, I mean protobufs uh, have, mm-hmm. and and I'm sure many other technologies. But this idea that yeah, you you have a representation of the type system, and then you generate the actual types in your programming language, and you. And you also generate the mappers that know how to take the serialized form and turn it into those types from that shared uh what do you call it, IDL. You're the mm-hmm. one Interface description. Yeah. Language. Um there was something there's definitely something useful and innovative there, but there's all sorts of trade offs to that because then you have to generate code and generating code has <laughs> all sorts of drawbacks.
0: Mm-hmm. Um there's a lot of I think fundamental theory in here that we just haven't given enough energy to because yeah. we're busy solving so many of these other problems. But yeah. I, th- you know, I wonder this this could be one of those things that justifies a new language at some point in the well, future.
1: Well, or... I mean Unison, we always well, talk right. about There's Unison, a, yeah. but yeah. Unison I think is making some interesting strides in this direction, but there are others as well. So I know that, um, uh, Heather, um, who worked on Scala, uh, at EP, EPFL, uh, and Scala center, she's now doing a doctoral program on distributed systems mm. and, and looking at some of these problems, but, mm-hmm. uh, we'll have to have her on the show sometime, but wow. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I think there is a lot of research going into this, Mm -hmm. but it's going to take a while for that research to be something that we all can use. But hopefully, hopefully in a decade, we'll be like, oh, thank God somebody solved the serialization problem.
0: Yeah, and I don't, I think to solve the serialization problem, they'll probably solve, end up solving a bunch of other problems as well. Yeah, yes. Yeah, suddenly, you know, that'll be a leap forward in our, just understanding of computing, but yeah. as things become more and more distributed, uh, we have to all of that stuff is becoming more yeah. important. We yeah. can no longer imagine that we're just running on our little isolated machine.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's nice and simple, but doesn't match well with reality. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Java sixteen. Um, I look forward to learning about it from you. <laughs> uh, back real quick to my blog post. There was a couple other topics that I covered in there. Uh, one was reactive mm. and talked about kind of different fundamental ways to look at reactive and coroutines as part of that and uh, stream processing stuff. And, and I think that that's the reactive stuff is a place where the Java ecosystem really shines and is doing a great job. Mm. Um
0: you know, this has got to be for a different podcast. But I'd like to delve. You know, I've I've kind of just ignored the whole reactive world, and I'd like to yeah. delve into okay. that next episode. That'll be a fun yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of pick your brain and say what's going on here and why. What problem are we? What solving? What problem are we trying to solve? Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, I'll give that to you. But yeah, we'll we'll move that to the next episode. Right. Um, the problem that reactive is solving is that things sometimes uh, are sometimes your programs are just waiting mm-hmm. waiting for something to happen and it turns out that our programming models are really our our legacy programming models at this point are really inefficient at handling those waiting states so really it's just an efficiency is the problem that we're trying to solve is we're trying to make programs that wait more efficient
0: just sounds like async why is it got a special name yeah it's just async oh okay (laughs) there
1: are some other pieces to it okay uh along with with async so um yeah so we'll talk about that one on a future episode but um check out my blog jamesword.com it's where it is and um hopefully people get something out of it but um
0: anything else no i think we're we're good awesome so see you next week see you next week